Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello. (laughs) And welcome for the second time to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Ann W. Smith, co-chair with Lynn Curtis of the club's member-led arts forum and your organizer for this program. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Well, for several years now, people in nonprofits in the arts have been talking a lot about implementing programs in EDI. It's the, it's the cutting-edge phrase, EDI, EDI. Well, what is EDI? It stands for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And so, <laughs> diversity includes all the ways in which people differ, encompassing the different characteristics that make one individual or group different from another. And it's used often, we're used to that in reference to race, ethnicity, and gender. Now we embrace a broader definition that includes age, national origin, religion, disability, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, education, marital status, language, and physical appearance. And our definition also includes diversity of thought ideas, perspectives, and values. We also recognize that individuals may affiliate with multiple identities. Equity is the fair treatment, access, opportunity, and advancement for all people. While at the same time, striving to identify and eliminate barriers that have prevented the full participation of some groups. Improving equity involves increasing justice and fairness within the procedures and processes of institutions or systems, as well as in their distribution of resources. Tackling equity issues requires an understanding of the root causes of outcome disparities within our society. And inclusion is the act of creating environments in which any individual or group can be and feel welcomed, respected, supported, and valued to fully participate. So this is a logical and natural topic for the Commonwealth Club to address as the nation's largest and oldest public affairs forum. So we are delighted to introduce our conversation tonight with Matthew Shilvuk, General Director of San Francisco Opera. Welcome back, Matthew. I think it's the third time in four years. Pretty good. Exciting to be back. And Charles Chip McNeil, the opera's first director of a new department, Diversity, Equity, and Community. As the opera's general director, Matthew is responsible for all the artistic and business aspects of the organization, and he's very passionate about telling profound stories of humanity through the total art form of opera. 
connecting audiences with the emotional core of the repertoire and empowering the whole company through a supportive, creative, and fiscally responsible workplace. Now in his fourth season, time flies, as general director, Silvak has overseen a major restructure of the senior management team, the inception of an endowment campaign in support of the company's <clears throat> second century, and the development of a number of programs aimed at highlighting the talents of the company. His priorities include replenishing the core repertory productions, creating a dynamic audience experience, and community pride in the opera, connecting the company to the fast-growing swirl of new thinking and new technologies in the Bay Area, and, most challenging of all perhaps, developing a stable financial model for large-scale repertory opera in the 21st century. And this past year, he formally established the uh, San Francisco Opera's take on EDI, calling it Equity, Diversity, and Community. Um, the opera's first director of Diversity, Equity, and Community, effective August 1st. August 1st. Mm -hmm. Just just walked in the door. <laughs> Charles Chip McNeil is an educator, researcher, civic leader, and activist with over two decades of transdisciplinary practice. I've known him for a, a few decades. A few decades. <laughs> <laughs> He's trained in multiple culturally responsive practices, including a teaching tolerance curriculum from the Southern Poverty Law Center. He is a certified performing arts library and museum oral historian. There's only a couple of places that do that. And lectures on arts, education, social justice, creativity, and multiculturalism for the Edinburgh International Festival, UC Berkeley, Stanford University, and Harvard Graduate School of Education. McNeil first joined San Francisco Opera in 2014, developing curricula for the company's in-school education programs, and prior to that was director of education for San Francisco Ballet for many years. He's currently involved with the leadership council of Create California, listen carefully, a statewide advocacy consortium. Got that? Okay. Where he co-chairs the Equity Committee, which is working with the California Arts Council to create, quote, a sustainable, equitable arts learning ecosystem for the state of California. Shall I repeat it? <laughs> no. <laughs> and he's a member of the recently established Community Working Group on Racial Equity in the Arts, uh, sponsored by the San Francisco Arts Commission. Human Rights Commission as well. Human Rights Commission, sorry. <clears throat> well, time to jump in with a few facts and get started to help provide context for the discussion. Uh, San Francisco Opera, by the way, is the largest performing arts organization in the Bay Area, employing over 1,000 full-time and part-time year-round and seasonal employees with a budget of over $70 million. 
so it's a very serious organization, and its home is a 3,146-seat War Memorial Opera House. And it's centennial is coming up, the operas is. Well, I guess we'll have parties for that one. <laughs> coming up in 2022 and 23C. <clears throat> the programs go from fall repertory from September to December and summer rep from June and July. They include the opera center training programs and associations and prof- professional development programs like Merola Opera, uh, which just did this wonderful If I Were You opera, Adler Fellows, who go all over the world after their training here, Opera in the Park, alfresco with blankets sometimes, and Opera in the Ballpark since 2006. So, in other words, the opera spreads itself around quite a bit. And if it has its way, it will do so even more. So why don't we get started? Um, we'll just kind of jump right in. And, and maybe, Matthew, mm-hmm. what's the purpose of this new department of equity, diversity, equity, and community? Well, Anne, thank you for having us today and allowing us to be together and to talk about this because this is a really exciting new chapter for San Francisco Opera, uh, a a chapter that has come out of work we've been doing but is really affirming the vital importance of this for the company, for the community, and for the intersection of the two together. And a couple of years ago, we began a really immersive strategic planning process. And we, it had been many years kind of outside of any of our reference points that we had crafted a mission statement, a vision statement, and really thought about what we were trying to accomplish as a company. We all knew that we were trying to do great opera and we were being successful in that. But what was it that was underpinning that? And what was it that was <coughs> helping drive us in new directions? And we, we went through an 18-month process with board members, with staff, with members of the organization, uh, the orchestra, chorus crew, and so forth. A really inclusive process and came out with uh, a really exciting new strategic framework for the company, which you can, you can find in full on our website, but it's not very big. It's just one page. And it was, it was p- very intentional that we keep it simple, that we keep it memorable. And coming out of that was with two things that I just want to to mention. The first was our new vision, our 10-year vision for the company. And it's very simply put, it's to crack the code on producing big art in the 21st century. Um, to we crack To the crack code. the code on producing big art in the 21st century. And as, Anne, as you mentioned, Anne, we have this glorious, glorious home in the War Memorial Opera House. Uh, it's a big house. We tell big stories. We deal with big emotions. We deal with big sets. We deal with big voices. You know, we, we're the place where you go big. And we're, we're so excited within that vision statement to think about what that means in the 21st century uniquely here in San Francisco and how can we be leaders in how we tell those stories. So that's the first element. The second element, I would say, is with underneath the mission and the vision, we came up with six key values that really are going to be embodying everything we do. And I, again, you, I'll refer you to the website to take a look at all of them. But, but the one that really has become a, a, a rallying cry and, and the impetus for really thinking about, about the EDI issues in a very 
formal way in the company, in the sense of incorporating into the structure of the company, was that we were committed to fostering a positive, collaborative, diverse, and inclusive organization. And opera, by its very nature, is the most communal of art forms. We, we bring together every single art form that exists, basically, and put it into one bucket and shake it all up, and these incredible stories emerge that, if we're doing our job, touch the soul. And so by our very nature, we are an inclusive organization, but we're also, we, we can also tend to be a very siloed organization. We, we, we are very, very strict in how we do things, and we strive for this great perfection on stage. So it's taking that essence of of collectivity as a company and saying, how do we extend that to the way we think about ourselves, the way we interact with ourselves, both internally and externally as well? And so that, that led us on this pathway to think about a really committed approach to becoming a more welcoming and inclusive organization. And when we realized that we had someone in our, in our midst, in, in Chip, who had such experience, such vision in this area, um, both working in education, but also more broadly as well in terms of organizational theory and, and what it means to engage in these issues in a large, complicated arts organization with a lot of strictures. There was an incredible sense of possibility that emerged out of those conversations, and this this new formation of this department has been a really inspiring thing for me just as we've gone through the conversations to think about how that could support this vision of who we are in the 21st century. So it's, it's part of a very broad arc as we think about our own identity as an organization, and I think a, an important part of that arc that will underpin pretty much everything we do in the company. Yeah. One of the things that we have to uh, remember, I think, that maybe doesn't come up elsewhere around the country as we are also a a Pacific Rim city <clears throat> with different uh, set of relationships than <clears throat> perhaps other companies, other opera companies. Well, and and we, we have seen some wonderful examples of that in, in action in the, in the last decade or so, um, going back all the way to 2008 with The Bonesetter's Daughter, which was a, a piece very much focused on, on the, uh, the Chinese-American experience, but then in, in a somewhat different way with Dream of the Red Chamber back in 2016, mm. which allowed us to connect at, a, at an absolute fundamental level with, with a deep story of Chinese heritage. And, and it was amazing then to see that piece go to Hong Kong, go to Beijing, uh, go to a couple of other Chinese cities and see the incredible uh, pride that the Chinese audiences had in the fact that this story had been taken to America and told on an American stage. So it was, it was a wonderful example of that Pacific Rim connectivity mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in action. Great. Mm -hmm. As, as we think more about the, the purpose of this department, um, I think it's important to recognize that arts organizations, all kinds of organizations, create missions and mission statements and vision statements, and they're words on paper. And those words on paper don't get turned, always get turned into action. And this was a strategic move to take these words, take these concepts, take these ideas, take this potential, and create a, a system a structure that can put it into action, that can embody the values that we are talking about. And I was impressed that our strategic, strategic framework had, out of the six values, three of them were squarely focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and I think that's, that's, that's encouraging. And yet, how are we going to make this happen? How are we going to put this into play? And to create a position is what certainly 
a, a substantial thing that an organization can do. But that position most often is embattled and it is siloed and it does not have the resources and the structures to actually create the systemic change we're talking about. So Matthew has taken a bold step and a significant step in creating a department that has a staff, that has a structure, that has the infrastructure to actually put this change into play. Um, we, we have to keep in mind that, you know, there is no one way to do this. There is no one answer. And this, this ambiguity and this uncertainty is something that, that we've had to come to terms with. And it is something that we are embracing as we uh, certainly look at all of the tools and all the strategies that are in the, the marketplace, but to know that we have to find out what's going to work for us, for our organization, for our context. And um, we have a department, we have people who are working in concert with everyone throughout this organization to, to make this happen. And I'm going to keep talking for a second. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, this is also not Chip's vision. This is not Chip's vision. Decades in this work, social justice, social emotional learning, uh, culturally responsive and linguistically responsive teaching. This is not Chip's vision. This is about bringing all of the voices from the the, the, the head of the, trust, the board of trustees to every staff member and giving them a voice and giving them a way to contribute and giving them a way to take part in creating a new era of what the arts can be and should be in the, as we relate to each other, as we relate to our community, and as we relate to this greater society, this arts ecosystem in new and, and hopefully meaningful ways. So it's a place... This, this department, I think, is a place where people can ask questions. Good. And can, they have some place to go. I want to know more about this. I want to get smarter about this. I want to do better. I want to do something different. How do I shift my thinking? There's a place for them to go, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think to that point, Chip, what, what is really fascinating and will be fascinating as, as we go on this journey is that in an opera company, you have so many different types of work happening. And, and each of those works, aspects of the work, will have different aspects of opportunity, of challenge, of questions that need to be asked, of ways of moving the dial. Um, I'll give you one, one very small example um, of the orchestra. As we think about, about the orchestra, the, there was a, uh, I can't remember what, what year it, it was, that orchestras started going to blind auditions to try and improve gender diversity. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was incredibly successful. You, you look at any American orchestra now, there is incredible gender diversity in an American orchestra. That aspect may potentially make it very hard to find other aspects of diversity within orchestras unless you can go back and, and really make sure you have an equitable pipeline going into those auditions. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that. I've, seen, I've been in, in places where there are kind of youth orchestras and you see a complete lack of diversity and you know that that is the pool of people going into the auditions who are going into the orchestras. So that, that's just one example of, of how we're going to need to think in, in really robust ways in very different parts of the organization. If we think about uh, issues of EDI in the technical training aspects, there's, there's a very different set of issues there. And so I, I'm really excited to see how these conversations emerge in, in very different ways throughout the organization because I think just as it, it can't be a one-size-fits-all for an organization – it's going to have to have many facets and many interesting lenses throughout the organization, how those things intersect right. with each other. And in San Francisco opera, it's not alone. I mean, we have to 
take stock of the fact that we're part of an ecosystem and we're part of a larger narrative going on. And it's happening in San Francisco, it's happening in California, it's happening throughout the nation. And I will tell you, based on the work that I do internationally, it's happening around the world. We are grappling with this idea of how we can work to give everyone a chance to contribute meaningfully in our arts and culture realm and in all aspects of society, education not being a, a small part. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that education, that pipeline of creating mm-hmm. diverse workforce and diverse artists. But the fact of the matter is, Create California, uh, all of the you know, funders across the nation, New York City has a new mandate that anybody who receives funds from New York City that organization has to have a plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion, or else you won't get the money. Mm-hmm. And so these are the mandates that say, we can, we, now that we know better, as Maya Angelou would say, now that we know better, we have to do better. Mm-hmm. You can't go back, and you can't hide that. So that is what's happening, and that's why, and this department is just one, strat, one, one step in, in addressing this, this big issue of diversity and equity in, in opera and classical uh, music. Good. And I've been around long enough, <laughs> as some of the rest of us here, um, to know that we've been through some of this dialogue before. Uh, multiculturalism, <laughs> what, that was the big deal in the 70s. And we were going to keep get everything open and, and, and we weren't using diversity as a word. We were using yeah. multicultural That's or right. whatever right. other words. But here we are back at it and... Somehow there's a different feeling about it. What makes you think it's going to be different this time? That's a good question. That's a hard question. Um, I, 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 think, I think that beca- what I'm talking about is the fact that um, I think recognizing the, the integral nature of things, that we are operating within systems, and mm-hmm. these systems are within systems, and that we're all interconnected. And, th- and what happened before, I think when we talked about multiculturalism, it lived in a very distinct place that was only addressed by certain educators or certain conceptual, certain people uh, in a very narrow view. Mm-hmm. And now what we have is because of our, 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 our awareness of the inequities in our society, of the oppression in our society, of the disparities in our society, across art forms, across the, you know, across the spectrum, I think there's now there is an opportunity for a critical mass of people to affect these systems at multiple points to create the kind of systemic change, lasting, sustainable change that I think will change the landscape of not only how we do business, but what art looks like on the stage. And I, I think it's a, different, it's a different time. And the dialogue is not just happening among artists, and it's not just happening among educators. Mm-hmm. It's happening in every sector of society, as far as I, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing that in nonprofits mm-hmm. all over the place. And, and I think being mandated by society and by audiences as well. And right. it's, it's become an absolute essential part of who we need to be as a company if we're to retain a sense of real honest purpose in, in yes. the community we exist in. And, and audiences are hungry for that. Audiences are expecting that. And I think as a, as a large civic arts organization, we have a responsibility to, to that. That's right. That was just one question. Yes. So uh, I gathered, I gathered uh, from what you said that one of the first things you're, you're doing is opening your door and asking people to 
come in and ask you questions. Yes. Am I right? You're absolutely right. How magnificent and special and important is it to have a place to share, to mm-hmm. speak, where someone is listening. And the listening isn't in a vacuum. It is something that can be put into place, into policy, into change, into action. That listening, though, is, is across the board. And it's different than just having a meeting where we're in a conversation. You know, David Boehm, the educator, philosopher, talked about the difference between dialogue and conversation. Yes. And dialogue, right, has a purpose. It's very purposeful. It's not a casual conversation that just moves across topics. It's purposeful. It's intentional. And this is what's new. And this is what's unique, that somebody... That, that are all of our, our staff, all of, our, uh, all of the beings who are part of this giant uh, mechanism that is, that is the opera have a place to uh, be part of a dialogue. And I'm looking at this opportunity to, um, to, to, to not get stuck and not be ashamed and to figure out how to create a safe space so where people can talk about their ignorance, talk about where they're uninformed, talk about where they're still growing, and to create a tolerance, a tolerance for the struggle that comes with change, to create a tolerance for the, 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 the ambiguity that comes where we search for, for, for ways, that ma- things to do that matter. Um, and some of them will work and some of them won't. Mm-hmm. And so it is important that this idea of listening, listening with the intention to understand and to hear and to find a way to channel that into action. Uh, We're looking at tools. We're looking Mm -hmm. at strategies. The marketplace has an amazing array of tools that deal with uh, diversity, equity, and social justice across nonprofits and across arts organizations and in the larger sector. And it's a matter of finding the right one, the tool that is for art, that's a appropriate for our context, for our art form, and for where we are on this continuum of growth and change to this, this, this new era of, of inclusion. Um, but listening is a big part of that. Yeah, and how do you know who's listening? And how do you know that they are listening? Well, I... I you're, you're, you have to be the biggest listener of all. <laughs> well, does. and I, I have really appreciated the even just the realization that the first step of this is is to acknowledge that we need to listen and we need to be open because it's something which arts companies are struggling with in terms of it, even how do you have the conversations around certain aspects of the organization and, and maybe we'll get into some of those some of those later mm-hmm. in including things like diversity and casting or certain pieces in the repertoire how how do arts companies have conversations in a responsible and robust way. And oftentimes we can be fearful of those conversations. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's been liberating for me to, to realize that even th- there is no perfect answer out there. But I'm glad and, you introduced the words, be fearful of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we don't uh, want to admit certain emotional responses that, that people might have to some of these issues. Mm-hmm. That's right. They will bring up our... Fragilities. They will bring up the, like I said, the places where we're unfinished. They will bring up our biases, and there is that's scary. And this is one of the things that I really, I told Matthew I was going to throw him some props, and um, it's not in in it for nothing. It is it is something that I really want to recognize. We couldn't be more different 
you know, growing up in England and <laughs> going to Oxford, poor black child from Oakland. Uh, but look at how we are coming together. We are coming together with our skills, our knowledge, our talents, and our abilities. If we, if you and I can model what it's like for different worlds and, mm -hmm. and different, different worldviews to come together with a singular vision and with a, a, an eye and an intention towards creating opera of the future, for creating uh, opportunities that will encourage and enliven this art form in meaningful ways for, for, for decades to come. If we can come together, how amazing is it that we can model that for others? Um, I somehow yeah. expect the arts to do it, hmm. to come together and do it and provide some leadership. And um, I, was, I was giving uh, Brad Erickson, who's head of Theater Bay Area, a microphone to see if he had anything to say about the last, what is it, three or four years where Theater Bay Area has been dealing with these issues and what what's come across in the struggle for developing. Yeah, thank you, Ann. And first of all, for putting this together, and thank you to the two of you. Um, Ann is a board member of ours and very, very um, involved here at the Commonwealth Club as well. And I was really just so excited to see that this was happening mm -hmm. and that hear about what was happening and that you were talking about it. Just to confirm everything that they've been saying, this issue of really advancing and confronting the inequities within the arts and to try to advance and, and be serious about making inclusion and equity real is perhaps the biggest the biggest issue confronting the entire arts sector, not only here in the Bay Area, but across the country. And to be able to hear about folks as important and, and really such as, as an example as the opera, not just talking about it, but obviously investing in it and confronting some of these, these scary changes that need to happen and making it real is just an incredible example, I think, to all of us. So, Mike. Kudos to everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. But have you had any particular instances um, brought forth to you of what's happened in any given theater company or? Oh, I, I think generic? let's let's stay focused on what they're doing. Tonight, okay, and we'll have another opportunity to talk okay. about that. Okay, if hope. you have a question later. Okay. <clears throat> but um, I, I think one of the things you're you're talking about, and I just want to stay on this. A couple things. I, I want to be clear that I think. The way this, some of this work begins is you begin with, I was, I should say it this way, I was deeply impacted by a, a forum I went to, sponsored, co-sponsored by the San Francisco Arts Commission and the Human Rights Commission, uh, in looking at racial equity in the arts. And one of the things that I came away from that with, and this is what made a huge impression on Matthew when I shared my, my learnings from that, was the fact that most people don't begin this conversation because we know it won't end. And we, and we, know, and we also are cognizant of the fact that we might make a mistake and that we're going to be imperfect, and that we're going to be incredibly vulnerable. Um, and that was incredibly insightful for me to, to really understand that in order for this work to have traction is that we've got to build trust, and we've got to create a context in which people feel safe not knowing. And they feel that we are worthy of their trust. Um, and that this commitment is not for show, and it's not another box checked, but instead it is the beginning of the changing of an era. And we, as an arts organization, as large and 
ostensibly as, as, as influential as we are, we can move that mountain. We can shift this work. We can be an example. Just as you're talking about the symphony, uh, symphonic music and the change in the structure that ended in gender, gender equality, uh, we, we, we haven't done that in terms of race. And so the work that we're doing begins with racial justice in the arts. I just want to be clear about that because that is the most prescient, prescient and the most precious thing that we can begin. It's so tangible. It's so real. And yes, there are inequities across uh, different people who are differently abled and LGBTQ and, and other, and, and so many different uh, constituencies. And yet we are, we must understand that racial equity in the arts is the place to begin because it is, it cuts across all those different groups mm -hmm. and all those different constituencies in a significant way. And so that's one of the other things I took away from, from that meeting. Not only that this conversation is one that has to go on and that we are hungry for it, that people want this and they need this conversation. And it's okay that we won't finish it today because we won't. Let me say that again. We won't finish it today. You won't leave here going, well, now we know. <laughs> we got this down. They just broke it down to us. No, we won't finish it today. But can we be part, can we be instruments of healing? Can we be instruments of health and, and, recon and, and reconnection? Can this entity, can this organization be part of the solution and part of hope and part of healing? I think we can. Um, so precious stuff. Hey, the, the, the word trust there is one that I keep coming back to. And, and in a way, our entire art form works on the premise of trust. Yes. Because, and, and mm -hmm. I, I, we could say this of other art forms too, but I'll, I'll say it very profoundly of opera. Opera works when it grabs hold of your emotions and it rips them out of your body and it plays around with them and then it puts them back in you and, <laughs> and leaves you feeling something different. That, that's the great opera experience that uh, you know, a number of us in the room have, uh, have had in recent months with things like Rosalka. And it's like there's something, the magic happens where it gets into the inside of you. Mm -hmm. And as we think about how we program at the opera, oftentimes the way, one of the big things we're thinking about is how do we find those moments? How do we make that, that happen? And when you think about when it doesn't work, it's because there's some kind of barrier there. Mm -hmm. Now, there are different kinds of barriers. There's, um, there's a lot of conversation about uh, you know, European productions that don't make any sense. And you know, a production of, <laughs> of uh, Bohème in Paris recently set on the moon and, and people are trying to grapple with it. And leaving aside the issue of kind of traditional contemporary, for me, it's an issue of does it, does it tell a story and does it allow you to have that emotional experience or not? And that, that can work in, in various ways of storytelling. But then there's another fundamental barrier of do you feel welcomed into this and do you feel like you, you are in a place where you can have an experience that is resonating with you? And if you're not, that's a just equally as big a barrier, a big of a brick wall that is going up, which means you're not going to have that emotional experience. So I think as we think about this work, it's very fundamental to the issue of how our community trusts us or not to provide something as deeply emotional, sometimes spiritual, as those operatic experiences. And if, you're, if, if you've perceived there's a barrier there, you are not going to take away the artistic depth of that experience. Um, I, I candidly just uh, had a, a, a realization of that for me was... Uh, a couple of years ago when I went to see a performance of My Fair Lady, which, um, you know, incredibly beautiful music, incredible, um, 
you know, songs, things, things that uh, are very much part of uh, awareness and musically done very well. But I just found it such an icky experience. Um, <laughs> just the, the misogyny in it, mm. The, mm. the reality of a piece that opens sitting in the Royal Opera House Covent Garden with a homeless population outside. It's like, mm. there was just like, I'm I really uncomfortable watching this. And, and it, it helped me, I think, understand what it can be like for someone to see a piece like Madame Butterfly mm. and have, have a, a more culturally kind of barrier put up, um, which, which is a big part of what we're dealing with. And it's not to say that necessarily those works shouldn't be done, but it's to say there has to be a sensitivity for how those works are done or how we're presenting these works, how we're telling these stories, so that we allow people to have that very immediate, very rich, very profound emotional experience, because that's what we do. That's, that's, that's what right. opera does. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. As an institution in an urban environment, what's the meaningfulness of the need for public theater, public arts, public opera? How does it relate to health and community building? I mean, we're in a, we're in a city. So doesn't that mean something? It does mean something. And, you know... Th- why we need opera. We, the arts are the way we tell the story. Yes. The human story. The story of us. The story of who we've been, who we hope to be, our challenges, and our dreams. We gather at these places because they're ways we come together. And that shared experience, that shared experience gives us a chance to have a dialogue about who we are, What's our relationship to ourselves and each other? And I think the bigger question, beyond why does opera matter in the world today, is how can opera matter more? Mm -hmm. And opera can matter more when the diversity of voices that contribute to this art enable it to grow in, in ways that are engaging and that have the ability to reflect our society and our community in meaningful ways. So it has to do with not only, as you say so often, and I'm going to take your words, not only does it have to do with the stories we tell, Mm -hmm. the stories we tell, but who's telling those stories? Mm -hmm. Who are the the choreographers and the conductors and the librettists? And how diverse are they? And how much do they represent the community that we hope to engage? So I think that becomes the question. That's a good question. But as far as healing in the arts go, this is, you know, we have so much evidence. We have so much evidence about healing in the arts. I'm sure we, many of us here today are aware of the science, uh, the new mind-brain science that tells us how important it is not only in healing trauma in students, in youth, in schools, but 
It, in fact, is having an, um, there's an amazing body of research that talks about the importance of shared experience and community gathering. And it's a way to process our trauma. And it's a way to exercise uh, those big emotions, mm-hmm. right? You think about how, how important and how, that pe- how popular, I should say, are the action films, right? Marvel films. Why do we need those big emotions, those big special effects? Because they somehow, we live vicariously through them. And that's what happens in opera. So it's the topic and the subject that matter because it is going to be something that is, has always been part of our story. It's hailing these big stories with big emotions. And the, and the thing is, we have now enough science to say that in going and attending to an event that has an ability to share out these big emotions, actually teaches us, gives us more permission to think through, feel through, and move through those emotions in our own personal lives. Mm-hmm. In other words, we live, we're living vicariously through these characters, and they give us permission to have emotions in our own life. This is what the science is telling us. So it's part of the healing. It's part of community building. It's part of society. And beyond that, you know, would it be Alzheimer's or, 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 or so many other uh, mobility-related uh, issues, everything points to the healing nature of dance and music and arts. And this is why in the military, in, um, in, in communities, in elder communities, we are seeing a plethora of programming around arts engagement and participatory arts mm-hmm. because we recognize this. Oh, I wonder where that came from. Perhaps it's because historically our indigenous populations are, 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 you know, are fully aware of, of, the, of the ways in which arts are community and they serve as a conduit not only for information but for healing and, to, and bringing to people together. Mm-hmm. I think, Anne, there's also um, the, the centrality of the opera house within a community, within a mm. large city. There is something very fundamental about that and, and the, again the, the place where all the arts come together is so often in many of the great cities in the world right in the middle of the city mm-hmm. and historically opera has been this place of a meeting point mm-hmm. of a place of gathering a place of community and I, I can't think of another experience than these big artistic houses where 3,000 people can come together and have these amazing moments of catharsis. I, if, if anyone else can think of one, I, I, I'm interested in, in thinking through that as well. But there is something incredible about 3,000 people coming together and, and having this very deep reaction to something like Bohème or Traviata where, or any number of pieces where they're finding something out about not only themselves but about themselves within a broader community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's where we have a unique responsibility as one of the large arts companies in America to make sure that that is a place that is everybody can have that kind of trust yes. um, because there's an incredible opportunity there. That building is an incredible opportunity. So making use of the opportunity exactly. going forward, do you have any thoughts, ideas relating to that? Uh, is this a five-year project? <laughs> Ten year, twenty. Look forward. If uh, yeah, um, I, I think it would be arbitrary and uh, arrogant to say that we have a timetable for change, not only internally but having the external impact that we hope for. 
I think what we can do is do the work, is we can create the policies and change the minds and hearts of people who make the policies to impact the art form in a way that is positive, that is generative, and that is inclusive. Um, I don't have a timetable on healing. I don't have a timetable on building community. Um, but I think we do need results. We do have to have some measure of change. And so we're looking at taking a, doing a climate survey and getting a baseline so we know what people think, what they feel, and how inclusive and how welcoming it is, and, and where we're stuck and where we know there are incredibly sincere pain points. But this work that we will do at the San Francisco Opera will be one that, is of, uh, that brings together these disparate voices and that allows everybody to contribute to what the possibilities are ahead of us. And in some ways, it might, some things will happen fast and other things will happen very slowly. Right. But it's our tolerance for the process that I think matter most. And I think mm. we're building that, that, we're building that muscle. A question for you. Um, an essential tool for the work, and you've referenced around it, is uh, data. <clears throat> How's the opera going to go about collecting data to support what it is that you are doing or to understand better where and how equity is needed? We, we have been having a, a number of preliminary conversations about this, this really important topic. Uh, yes. About what data we need to collect and how we need to collect it and, and, and what is helpful data and what is not helpful data. Mm. And I think this, this question hits upon a very fundamental issue that we need to grapple with and we need to grapple with you know, fast and thoughtfully about the way that we, we think about um, talking about this issue through, through data because that's a very, very powerful tool both positively and negatively. And so... Um, I mean, Chip, you, you have, I think, more experience on this than, than I do, but I, I do think it's something that we have to take very seriously right. and very carefully as well. It's true. Data is not impartial. Data is used to pathologize and marginalize and <coughs> oppress and to uh, sustain the uh, status quo. Other times, the data is used to... Data can be used to, to um, really obfuscate and, and, and cover up the, the real issue and the true change that is not really taking place. But the first step is to disaggregate the data, is to really, is to look, to look deeply, to look carefully, and to ask the questions that you don't really want to see, which is how many people of color go to the opera? How many people of color are in leadership roles? How many people of color are on the stage? How many people of color are contributing to this art form? And these are hard questions, and they're scary questions, and the answers <coughs> may not be, um, you know, maybe hard to take and could be, you know, uh, embarrassing. And yet it gives us a starting place. It gives us the truth. And disaggregating the data is about saying not just how many ticket buyers we have, but how many ticket buyers of color do we have and why? And we have some, we have some work to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I, th I think the fundamental is we know that we have to do better. That's right. And whether it's in our audience demographics either inside the house or outside the house. Um, you, you mentioned creative leadership. I mean, that's a hugely important thing. That who, who is telling the stories and who is creating it? Conductors, directors, designers, 
how how is that? And then these longer term issues. And going back to your question about timeline and um, the issues of making sure that we are taking a leadership role in thinking about that pipeline, mm-hmm. making sure that people at the at the point at which they can make those decisions are thinking about technical theatre as a possible tr- as a possible vocation. Yes. And and what Jobs. leadership role does the opera take uh, within? that kind of work as well because that's a very that is a very long-term change that has to happen mm-hmm. um, but it's not going to happen unless companies like ours take a leadership role within that but I, I think you're absolutely right chip we, we have to find the right way to create mm-hmm. the right data that we can then trust and believe in mm-hmm. and then see see the impact as we move forward right. I, I just don't want this time to end without us talking about the importance of equitable access to arts and education. I I can't. It is my heart. It is my soul. And it is the underpinning of creating the pipeline. Before you can get those creatives in the work, Mm -hmm. it's got to start somewhere. And access to the arts is where it begins. Coming out on August 28th, the California, uh, Create California is going to release information from the California Arts Data Project. And this is the project that looks at information about who's getting the arts in public schools across the nation, I mean, across the state. And the story is a sad one, and it's not surprising. People of color, children of color, black and brown children get the least access. And therefore, and those same schools coincidentally have the least achievement. But that's a misnomer. I'm not going to go into the achievement gap story because it's not an achievement gap. It's a funding gap. And it's a funding gap that is connected to an equity gap, that's connected to an opportunity gap that people are calling an achievement gap. And the, and the truth of the matter is, unless we address the pipeline that creates not only the opera goers of the future, but the opera creators of the future, unless, and that's why it's one of the pillars yeah. of our department. Mm-hmm. It is not only DEI and building community, but it is arts education. And that we as an institution must understand that this is where this is seeded. This is where it begins. This is where we create possibilities and our students of color will never achieve their full sense of self unless we do this. There's enough information. Uh, We have have statistics that show us that students of color, low-income students especially, when when they have access to quality, sustainable, ongoing arts education, do better in school, they are more often employed. They actually participate in community engagement more often. So this is what we're talking about. This is, the, this is why it matters. Well, there's one thing that we were discussing the other day in a group um, was <clears throat> the Disappearing Latinx Act. Mm. Uh, in the 80s and so on, 70s, oh. 80s, there were several companies, theater companies, dance companies, Latino companies from different, uh, doing different styles with uh, different uh, values, different approaches, uh, not just Teatro Campesino, but other organizations as well. Um, Opera San Jose tried to do a couple of things. But we were looking around, thinking, well, where is everybody? Nobody's doing um, a... Latino-oriented opera, music, theater program in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. I was on a panel for the Arts Council. I said, oh, good, now I'll find out what else is, you know, it was like, where, where are they? Where'd people go? Is this an immigration issue? 
Is it? You know, what does it have to do with, with all that's going on? To me, that's a very serious thing to see uh, people's art, art forms that have melted away. It's why, true. Why, why aren't they here? It's true. Well, and how, how easy is it for artists to live in the city of San Francisco or in the Bay well, Area? Well, that's in a, the Bay Area. That's right. Yes, yes. That's right. But we still, we still have um, artists of color. Uh, we just do not have organizations doing something mm-hmm. from the performing arts. Now, um, Galleria de la Raza mm-hmm. found a home mm-hmm. on, on right. Valencia and Chris, so on. Yeah. But we don't have a theater company. So you're talking about a population that is disproportionately impacted by the economics and by the landscape that is marginalizing marginalizing, uh, artists of color. I will say to you that, uh, just for the record, that uh, Houston um, Grand Opera is doing the second Mm -hmm. uh, mariachi Mariachi. opera. So it exists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's going to be premiering this fall. I'm hoping to go. Uh, because it is an amazing, I think, a representation of what is possible when you bring in disparate voices, when you bring in, um, uh, when you bring in the voices of people who traditionally have not been part of this art form to speak to it in a new and innovative way. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting. Absolutely. There's been some, speaking of education, mm-hmm. there's been some um, arts education work done in schools by the opera and the symphony and the ballet of getting kids to create work, you know, from from their background. Yes. And yes. then where does it go? You know, what's next? Mm-hmm. Well, and what's been amazing in, in, the, in the work that I've seen through the opera and, and the opera guild, Caroline Altman's here today, um, is, is when, when children get to pick the stories, just how deep and and tied into the social fabric of, of life those stories are. It's, yeah. it's kind of amazing just the, mm-hmm. the seriousness of storytelling that happens. It's very true. Uh, one, of the, one of the things when I was brought onto the opera as the curriculum uh, and program specialist is to infuse our programs with culturally and linguistically responsive uh, pedagogy. And the, one of the first things uh, I, I helped to initiate was the fact that the tr- original operas written by students in schools, that they are about something, that they weren't about The Wizard of Oz, and that they weren't about, you know, mind, you know let's make something that's fun to do versus let's, make, let's create something that matters. Yeah. And so, yes, all of us, I think, in, in the field of arts education are looking at creating programs that amplify student voice and that give a conduit for not only helping them to understand themselves, but helping us to understand them and helping create a, a, a context in which everybody's voice shows up and that curriculum is not something that sits outside the child, outside the student, but that it is they contribute to it mm-hmm. and they are a meaning maker in it. Um, and those students who we work with and we have a legacy of working with are students who will grow up to be part of a population who understand the potential that's available in this art form and in others. Um, and, and that is part of this, this deep, uh, passionate work that we do. And the and challenge. That, and that we hope to sustain. Well, and, and, and many students, Chip, I think, who have found a voice that they wouldn't have otherwise had right. to tell their stories. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Just a few more uh, sort of edgy questions, slightly, some of them. Um, <clears throat> and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, ask for 
have short questions and have short pretty answer. short answers. Okay. Short answers. Okay. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> what's Matthew? What's been the reaction of the board in establishing to establishing this department? And do, uh, do you foresee tensions <laughs> with the board as you build up the de department's priorities? Yeah, I mean, I think if we go back to the original. Uh, the original connection back to the strategic framework. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the very first real elements that has really come into focus through that strategic framework. So I think there's been a, a lot of respect for the fact that we've moved quickly and that we've we've taken a leadership role in this. I think, as with all aspects of of this work, as we alluded to earlier, there are going to be challenges and difficulties. Um, I and that those will exist within all aspects of the organization. I, I, I often kind of use Madame Butterfly as, as the opera Madame Butterfly as a bit of a proxy for, for the challenge of this because this is a work that is beloved by, by audience, by, by opera goers, but is, also has a lot of problems. Yeah. How do we address that work? And it, it's it's a, maybe a, a, a flippant example and a reductive example, but it, mm. it's, it's a useful way of just saying that's the kind of issue of, you know, is Madame Butterfly a work we should be doing at the mm -hmm. moment? And to me, I would say, how should we be doing Madame Butterfly at the moment okay. in a way that makes sense? I just want to succinctly comment and simply say that across organizations, especially one as large as San Francisco Opera, there are some people who get it, and there are some people who don't yet understand what we're doing and why, because their worldview has not provided them an opportunity to see the inequities that are right in front of them. And, they also, and then people also come to this thinking, what am I going to lose or have to give up yeah. in order for this thing to happen? And, and, and those things are expected. It would be naive of us to not understand that, that the readiness, the readiness for this work exists on a continuum, some very ready and some very reticent. And our goal is to meet them where they are mm -hmm. and give them just enough information yeah, yeah. to help create the shift and transformation. Yeah. Yeah. So should I, I, and, and, and should I assume that the Met and all the uh, Metropolitan Opera and all the other companies are doing similar things around the country. I think different different companies are doing different things. Uh, Santa Fe has a uh, program within their their education and audience uh, engagement work, uh, which is is doing some important DEI work. Uh, Chicago has, um, as with Houston, um, made a, a policy of doing work out in the community, um, working with different communities, and so they've, they've done that more mm -hmm. within a uh, performative aspect. I, I think we, the establishment of this department is something of a, of a vanguard um, yeah. approach within the opera world, which I think is, is, is a point of great excitement and great opportunity for us. Well, that's why you know, I read it and I say, well, do they really mean this? <laughs> Will they still mean this in three mm -hmm, years? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think that's probably the, the check. And yeah. is this I think San Francisco Ballet has just brought on uh, yes. EDI specialists onto their team. Good. Uh, so com companies mm -hmm. are uh, really realizing they have to do this in a purposeful way. That's yeah. right. Opera St. Louis and Long Beach Opera are setting some examples for what I'm looking to about substantive uh, and meaningful community conversations that have to do with the topic of the main stage operas. And they are talking to communities and bringing in audiences and being really deliberate and intentional about that engagement. And that is the kind of work that I hope to right. do as well. What about trickle down to smaller companies, smaller organizations uh, who are part of the 
city's cultural framework. Well, I think how's, we, how's the we, opera? Engaging? We have a lot to learn from those organizations. Uh -huh. We do. We do. And how can you and how can yeah. you engage them as part of what you do? Well, I think I think we were just talking before we started about developing the network, the community of arts organizations, and and I think you know although we are very excited to be doing this work, we we do not pretend to be leaders in this work. Mm -hmm. we, we don't we don't have all the answers. Nor are we alone. And our challenge is to figure out how to lead with and to be in concert with people um, and not take up all the space right. in the room. Um, and that's that's something we're going to work mm -hmm. towards. Absolutely. Good. Um, when, once, uh, one, one for Matthew and then I have a final one um, for Chip. Um, I say I'm a supporter of San Francisco. I mean, I've had my subscriptions in the mm -hmm. past. I've even donated. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. I like to go to the summer one. Now summer I like and fall are both good. Now I like to go to the matinees as I age. As we get age, yeah. And, and, you know, senior communities really, really uh, make an effort to have their residents participate because of this whole thing right. that it makes you feel better. It makes you, helps you live mm -hmm. longer it does. to engage in the arts. Proof. There's proof all over the That's place. Right. That's right. Um, but how you envision? How do you envision uh, supporters contributing to this endeavor? We we have had. You want more money from us, or what is it you want? <laughs> we always want more money <laughs> from everybody. We we have had some incredibly engaging conversations with some some of our donors who are so excited about this work, on on all levels, on on the deep fundamental systemic levels. On, on the engagement of new voices, new perspectives. Uh, the, the Tosca we did last year was uh, directed by a wonderful uh, young American woman, Shauna Lucy, and she, bought, she found a way to tell an incredible and contemporary story within a very traditional framework that, that I think only she was able to bring to that. And that kind of work... Um, has really galvanized a lot of new thinking, and I think it will galvanize a lot of new people into the company. So we've, we've already begun to see some exciting impact. And we look forward to more. Uh, Chip, did you have any comment on this um, semi-convoluted question? If it not, is, no. It is. Um, Dealing with affinity spaces and um, mm -hmm. to su supporting affinity. Um, anything specific you think the opera could do more of through this program? <clears throat> well, it, this might not be the affinity space that this person envisioned necessarily. Right. But I'll tell you, in, in my short time, in, well, I've only been in the role technically for two weeks, but uh, <laughs> I literally can give me a minute to get started. Uh, the art, uh, he's been in the arts since he was But in, in a prelude to that, I was able to travel to some companies who were doing some DEI work to begin to get a sense of what's happening in the field. And overwhelmingly, as I encountered primarily African-American opera singers, they looked at me as some opportunity that didn't exist in the field before, which is somebody who is instigating and who is provoking and who is disrupting and who is making in being very intentional, intentional about making space. And so the affinity space that I see as a readiness is to 
think about the ways in which we might, you know, whether it be a, a, a group or a symposium or, or some kind of way to look at uh, African-American particularly, but artists of color who are involved in opera and in the classical arts, um, to come together so that we can better understand what's working in this field and what's not working, and for us to have a safe space in which to really surface those issues and to really bring them about. And in that way, can we come up with a strategy that's going to have the kind of impact and resonance among those artists that we hope to? So that's how I think about affinity spaces. It's a good way to think, yeah. and it'll carry you forward hopefully for many years. And um, the, uh, the, the sense of affinity that we all feel will only increase as it, when it comes to San Francisco opera. So thank you so much, um, Matthew and Charles Chip, and San Francisco opera and Theater Bay Area. Thank you, Brad, for the remarks. Thanks for this enlightening discussion. Um, on Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, presented here at the Commonwealth Club. Um, we uh, thank our audiences here. Thank you very much as we thank our speakers. And we thank those listening on the, ra the uh, radio the recording. And uh, now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 117th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. <laughs>